You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from the third format, everyone's favorite buzzsaw. Sarah's Hi. real. I only exist on the internet. Hi. Sarah's Hello. real. Um, it's oh, up for debate. Welcome to Vocal Fry, Heidi. Thank you. Wait, wait I have a message for you guys. Uh, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Is that like an actual handcrafted mug? I got it at Goodwill of all places. No. And I, yes. And I use it for all my students. I wash it, of course, after what, right. each time. But... You know, but it's like this subconscious, you know, infusion. Every time they take a sip of their water or tea, they have that, uh-huh. you know. And now I'm doing it for myself. Heidi is, hold- <laughs> Heidi is holding a mug that says, I am a great singer. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I forget people can't see us. Exactly. I forget that, too. You mean, yeah. it, Sarah, Sorry. except for our very awkward three-minute video where people yes. could see us? Where I was incredibly <laughs> aware of the fact that people could see us. I wouldn't watch that, and I was just like, Oh, Jamie <laughs> laughed at me the whole time. That's why we're yeah. that's why we're a radio show, not a. <laughs> I'm so relieved. Believe me, as one who has New Jersey hair and so forth, <laughs> it's just yeah, that's where I'm from. Uh, so. so Heidi, this episode will drop next Friday. Okay. And we are super excited to have you. Uh, we had I'm to get so excited. we had to get our episode with Alan Henderson out today um, for the sort of launch of Nat's cast. Uh, so so that one went out today. Um, I totally hear you. He's the head head umbrella of everything. El Jefe. Um, <laughs> anyway um so i heidi i've wanted to have you on vocal fry for a long time vocal fam we are here with heidi moss uh sop- soprano scientist brilliant human all together um Stop it. and uh i i really there's a lot i want to get to i want to get to your your nats talk your upcoming journal of singing article which are obviously sort of uh, interrelated um and uh, I, I do want to talk about those things. However, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I really want to talk. I, I want to hear. I want to hear at least one great Richard Miller story. That is on oh. my. That's on my agenda oh. for for today. Oh um, my gosh! All right, I, I think I have a good one. But uh, just, and I also want to hear a little bit about you know, sort of um, one of Vocal Fry's missions areas has been to destigmatize anything about voice health and things that we as humans go through in our singing journeys. And uh, so, you know, we, we'd love to hear a little bit about what, you know, your, your process has been like. Um, so anyway, let, let, let's just start at the beginning. How'd you get into singing in the first place? Oh, my gosh. How did I get into? How does anyone get into singing? Right. I mean, I, I think it's like one of those. I love to sing as a kid. My family was not into music per se and I was the annoying youngest child that was would mm-hmm. sing anything um but in <laughs> when I <laughs> I played piano for a really long time and this she was probably 90 years old in my town uh had a little voice studio a piano studio and she asked if I would play for some singers yeah. and I was I was about 
16 maybe 15 and I came in and I was like I don't want to be at the piano I want to be be the singer (laughs) I want to be the singer and I started her name was Hortense Harrington and I started she sang at the Met I think in the 20s something like that but anyway so I started taking lessons with her and we would have listening uh, parties on a Victrola and you know opera was something I didn't get exposed to and I was just hooked. But the funny thing is, she was a little clueless about repertoire. So the first aria I had learned was, um, it was Norma Costa Diva. (laughs) Sarah, wait, Sarah, Sarah, do you have a fairly similar story, Sarah? Go ahead. I literally went into my undergrad college auditions singing VC Dark Day. Yeah. No, no big. Yeah. I was like, God, I know. Like, you know, let's do Collis's repertoire at Just 16. It's it. awesome. Why not? And I mean, no Sarah, Sarah still sort of bills herself a soubrette. So. <laughs> oh, that, I was just, I what was a soubrette. I didn't know either. It was just pretty, you know. Yeah, I just I did some voice lessons. My teacher told me to sing this, so I was like, okay, this is a good song. I didn't know okay. anything. Exactly. Thankfully, by the time I auditioned for college, I had a little more, uh, you know, insight yeah. as to not to use that one. And I've never touched that aria again. But, so now you, know. <laughs> you went to Oberlin, and did you double major as an undergraduate? Yes. So I have, they have a double degree program. That's why I picked Oberlin because I have a family of scientists. And of course it's like, you know, they're, they're supportive now, but back then it's like, you can't just go to a conservatory, you know, you need something else. So Oberlin has a great double degree program where you can, I majored in biology there and voice at the conservatory. And Richard Miller was the reason I went because I went to his summer program. Uh And one funny story about that is I was myself and another a tenor were the youngest ones at his summer program because okay. it was mostly for teachers at that point right and because we were there the next year they're like i think we need to make something for high school students because you know i think we were <laughs> annoying you know with all these professional <laughs> teachers and us not knowing anything but wanting to be like i'll sing i'll answer questions you know <laughs> so they're like we need a separate program for these people so uh yeah so after that they had a high school program <laughs> after that year that's that's where that came from. That's hilarious. I, that, yeah, before they didn't have two. Before that year, they did not have two programs. They had one. Funny. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Oh. I did, I had yeah. no idea. Someone I, had to start it. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so then I went to Oberlin and and double did the double degree program there. That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, and now, did you work with Richard in studio, or did you work with someone else? I worked with Don May I in studio because okay. Richard was... Miller went on sabbatical when I was mm. there. Um, but the great news is he's so he was so generous because he knew I wanted to go there because of him. And so he had that lab there. So he let me play in, in the lab and do a lot of things there. And he was always so supportive. So even though I didn't awesome. get to study with him full time, he was always there. And his wife is a dream, too. She was the Italian teacher. So. Oh. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Amazing. I, I had. I had a bunch of yeah. high school friends that went to Oberlin, but but um, fascinating. Awesome. Um, so okay. I mean, and then y- you ended up going into science, though, right? I mean, I mean, for a yeah. while, anyway. 
for a while. I went to graduate school and and but for biochemistry. I mean, I was one of those. I mean, soubrettes are sort of like that. Like it's like the late puberty kind of thing. So I didn't really hit vocal puberty until maybe. 27 28 so hmm. i i call that my incubation period to fund my singing habit so yeah <laughs> Abs- absolutely so I, I get that. well and you know what's yeah. interesting though with that is i think we've had such a paradigm shift in the in recent years because sort of like you know when we were coming up it was sort of like oh if you have a secondary area it's like you're giving up on your career you're not really serious about it and nowadays i think actually the idea you know like when we had dana varga on the idea of a correlative yeah. career has become the norm Oh, definitely. I, yeah, I think it's healthy because I think as an artist, we need to tap into so many different things and experiences. Yeah. And and so there's something about, you know, having that not be my life. Not that the other route isn't, you know, valid. It's just a different perspective, which I think is always nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. every yeah. time I see you post anything about alleles or something that, that <laughs> and, my, and my mind or chromosomes and my, mind, my yeah. brain is like, I, this person is smarter than I am. I'm oh, not stop. capable of, like, I can't, no, I can't, I can't hang. Well, what I say is it's all the same. We all do the same thing. I mean, the great thing about science is, and music is that it's a technical foundation with a creative mm-hmm. overlay. And oh. so I feel like my brain isn't different, right? It's it's processing something technically and then being able to think creatively about it. Yeah. And it's same for both. Absolutely. So. Oh, that's just fantastic what a great there we go oh absolutely i love that Uh, now now you were able to we're the same person nick we're the same person well listen i'm gonna need some advice here very soon because your daughters are a little older than mine and uh let me tell you i have my i have a my my son is 10 but my daughter is about to be eight next week and i have oh my god i have an eight teenager (laughs) and i'm gonna need some advice Uh, on these teen things with a daughter oh my god if you saw what this house was like 10 minutes before this it was my husband scooting like four teenage girls out the door in their pajamas to go get Starbucks so that they wouldn't make noise with their TikToks and videos while we're doing this My podcast. Gosh, TikTok. <laughs> so, yeah, it it's, you know, it's one of those just like hold your breath and go underwater. Oh, I don't know. Oh it's, my gosh. Uh, I don't know. It, it's, oh. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I love them to pieces, but yep. you know, it's something it's not always easy. So, and they're they're different. I mean, I have two and they're just completely opposite humans. So mine as well. My two kids, just nothing alike whatsoever, which is really good. (laughs) It's sort of really good prep as a voice teacher to realize that the different humans that are walking into your life as a voice teacher are totally unique. That is a great analogy. It's not one size fits all for parenting or teaching, right? I mean, it's we're, we're always sort of assessing like, what will this interaction create (laughs) so So, now at some point you sort of transitioned out of your sort of science work back to singing i guess you Mm -hmm. started winning some auditions started singing some and and, yeah and you were singing around i mean it was you know yeah i got very lucky i i have to tell one quick story about how i got back in in graduate school because it's one of those like 
I'm not a fate person, really. I'm a scientist, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but um, when I was in graduate school, I I actually didn't sing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. Initially, initially, because it was so it's so consuming, right? You know, it's just it uh, is. Yeah. Uh, and I made that kind of vow to myself that I wouldn't, you know, this is my new life. Uh, but I needed an apartment and I was looking around and there was a beautiful old house in West Philadelphia. I was at UPenn. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I, I started renting that for my second year. And one day I heard music downstairs and I was like, that doesn't sound like a recording. It was live. I was in the landlord's house. There was one apartment in the landlord's house. Yeah. So I asked my landlord, this is about three months in to my second year. And uh I said, did I hear live music? He said, yes. He said, my name's, uh, he said, I'm a musician. My name's Franklin Zimmerman. Franklin Zimmerman, all of Purcell's works are cataloged by Z numbers. My landlord oh. was a Purcell scholar who had a, a, a musical program called Pen Pro Musica. And I said, I'm a singer. This is the first time I'd said that sentence probably yeah. in two years or, you know. <laughs> and he said, and he said, do you want to audition? And I was like, yes. And oh like, my oh, gosh. So I auditioned. I got second woman in Dido and Aeneas, which was a wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then I actually sang um, one of the soprano solos, just the, the recits, because Christina Buras was the soprano for everything else, who's a wonderful soprano, for the Messiah that year in Rittenhouse Square. And that oh. was like, I was like, oh, the gods are coming down saying, you need to do this again. <laughs> so phenomenal after school, of, isn't that a funny story it's like yeah well, um so after graduate school instead of going on I was thinking actually I took the MCATs I was going to go to medical school I was going to get a PhD in huh. science I moved to New York because I got a job at a lab there and I was like I'll incubate here for a little bit mm-hmm. and use my science job to fund my singing habit and see what happens so that was sort of the that was the initial transition. Yeah. Oh That's my good. Now you were yeah. actually, I, cause I think I've seen you like, so that whole period you were in New York during nine 11. That was during that whole period. That was exactly. part of your years there. Right. Yes. That dates me, but yes. <laughs> well, no, sorry. I don't mean, no, I just, no, I'm, no, I, no. I, I, I oh, it, it's, it's interesting I because age. <laughs> you know, our, our new college students who are coming to college, you know, now, we're not alive f- for 9-11, which, you know, all of us right. of our generation sort of basically, I think, mark our lives, life before it and life after it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, you know, and it's so weird that this year's incoming freshman class in college is going to have been born in 2002. I know. It's ah. weird. Um, You're young, Sarah, so you know. Oh, that feeling. Oh, well. Oh, did I? Lose? <laughs> I was in first grade. Oh, yeah. stop it, Sarah. Oh, stop. <laughs> I, mean, okay. I vaguely remember. I mean, I remember because my dad's a pilot. And so before 9 11, I could go to the airport and like go all the way to the end and watch like if he was taking off or if he was flying somewhere like that. And I, I never got to do that again. Of course, I didn't get why, but just, you know, there are little changes. Not the same, yeah. obviously, but little yeah. things that changed yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I saw it from my window. That was the oh thing. Is I the, where Rockefeller University is is it's on the East River, but our you know we have apartments that are re- were really tall. Right. And uh, so I was able to. I actually took pictures. Sometimes I hesitate to post them because I saw the first plane 
you know, I have a picture of the hole, but the second plane hadn't hit yet. Oh my gosh. And as I actually saw, cause the plane came from the East, the plane, and I wish I had taken pictures, but I was so shocked because at first we thought it was an accident. And then I see the second plane coming in. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is not an accident. And then the yeah. whole, obviously the whole yeah. city, you know, went crazy. And yeah. anyway, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, so oh sort of walk us through sort of those early then singing stages and sort of where, you know, what happened with your injury and with the, with, with what happened to tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So, when I was, I, I studied with Stephen Smith, Naked Voice mm-hmm. Praise, yep. um, in New York, and that was when I started winning things, and I was very lucky. You know, I think being a scientist, I didn't feel the sense of what it's like to be with a bunch of singers feeling stressed out and comparative. My husband yeah. says Com- comparison is a thief of joy, and so, you know, I was... Uh, I was in science, so I didn't have anyone to compare myself to. So you could feel a little more liberated. And then after that, that changed. But that's a whole other can of worms. But I was working. I, I got a job with Opera Memphis. Uh, oh, singing, cool. Yeah, singing uh, Oscar. Um, and oh, so, and I sang in Italy. I sang Susanna in Marriage of Figaro. And so things were just happening. Um, and then, of course, I settled here and have, had kids. And so I was all over the bay. And I had my first house audition for SFO about hmm, maybe because they book about a year out. It was probably about Mm -hmm. nine months or eight. Yeah, maybe more like 10 months. I forget now before my injury. And I had scored a a contract and a cover and all of that. And then I got uh, happened overnight. I mean, this is what Bell's palsy does. It's diagnosis is Bell's palsy. Um, I thought I had a stroke. (laughs) Obviously, yeah. yeah. Uh, and because I woke up, it was one of those things that I couldn't spit brushing my teeth. Um, but like many people who have who have this diagnosis, you go in, and this is something I'm trying to advocate for, mm-hmm. and they just say, "Oh, you'll be better in three months," because that's the normal, you know, the 85 percent plus improve with just steroids, antivirals, um, because they assume it's just sort of this normal thing. And but what happened with me is. So they put me on that, go home, you know, don't worry about it. Three months later, I was still a mess. Yeah. So I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. And that's when they did the MRI. And so I don't know. I mean, we can get into nerve structure. So nerves have, I, I liken them to a plastic, you know, like a wire that has a plastic coating, right? That you have okay. that, right? So yeah, yeah. the axon is the wire and the myelin sheath is wrapping around it. Okay. And so that's that's what nerves basically look like. And so most cases of Bell's palsy, it's just that that inflammation, the compression of the nerve kills the myelin sheath, but the wires are still intact. So the where the wires go in, you know, where they plug in and where they start aren't damaged. When they did the MRI on me, all of them, both the axon and the myelin sheath were damaged, starting from, so it starts right above the ear, your seventh cranial nerve, and then branches out like a tree into all your facial muscles and some of your laryngeal muscles and neck muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So all of those were killed. And I remember my neurologist, like that moment of him reading that diagnosis to me and yeah. he was just like, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, what does this mean? And he just, you know, he, he said, you know, he gave it to me straight. 
Um, you know, there's some singing issues. Obviously, there were a lot of articulator issues, uh, vanity issues, which people don't talk about enough. See, if I look like I'm winking mm-hmm. at you, they can't see me. I've trained a lot to make it not as obvious, but if I smile, you know, I look really, wow. you know. So there's just so what happens subsequently is it takes about the nerves regrow about a millimeter every two or three days. So it took about two years for the nerves to grow back. So two years I had this horrible droop and um, I still have to cover my eye, but the nerves have no path to grow. Those wires were there for lost. So, so what happens is you go from being paralyzed to Mm -hmm. being what's called synkinesis. And if I had to rank which was worse, I would say the synkinesis is worse because what happens is, and I have the slide that I give at talks when I talk about this, Uh I have constant muscle activity. The the nerves don't know to be off because they're just, they regrew. So the reason my eyebrow eyebrow can't raise is not that it's paralyzed. It's just that the nerves are antagonistic and they're constantly Uh acting. So all of my muscles, they have a, the great image of it is, you know, when you blink, your eye is sort of quiet and then your orbicularis has spikes if you do an EMG. With me, it's like all the time and then it'll get this kind of max, so it's hyperactive and then even more hyperactive when I try to to blink. So I get Uh hypertrophy, this side of my face is about uh, half an inch thicker muscularly Um, and I just get random aberrant contractions, you know, just constantly. So there's this discomfort, annoying. And so I constantly work to not even to be quiet in my face Uh um, because then I'll at least have baseline activity, but I can sense that this side is active and this side is not even when I'm sitting here. It's a weird, it's hard to describe, but it's called synchronesis. So that's, Interesting. I'm just, yeah. I'm just not, you know, let, let's tie that then into your singing and, and, okay. and, and how, so how did that, you know, what were sort of the initial impacts in your singing and then what steps have you sort of taken over the years, you know, right. to, to just sort of, you know, um, cause, l- cause let me just say this vocal fam. Yeah. I have heard Heidi recently and prior to her injury from videos that she's posted, and she is an incredible artist. I mean, this is a fine, 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 fine singing voice. So, (laughs) so like, what was that process like? I mean, you know, what were the challenges? All that. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously depressed for the beginning. Yeah, Uh, uh, I I hear that. Understandably loud and clear. I was told I would never sing again. You know, by my neurologist, by people in the field. You know, we Mm -hmm. love you, Heidi. But, you know, especially the vanity part, believe it or not, because I was a subret or a lyric, light lyric at the time. And, you know, all those parts are like, let's be cute. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Sarah knows nothing uh, about this. Yeah. Yeah. The Ina. Yeah. I used to call it Ina. The Ina's. No, that's it. That's it. It's like, yeah. oh, you're five feet tall. Oh, yeah. Subret. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, welcome to my world. All yeah. right. Um, so what I did was at first I didn't sing at all. It was just like, this is done. But then, you know, you get, you realize how important it is to you. I, unfortunately, insurance didn't cover SLP work. And plus it was so rare, you know, I was lucky. I got like 1% of the 1%. Um, but I knew Miller, right? I knew I had that kind of background in science. Mm -hmm. I had the background in, you know, knowing anatomy and I was like, let me figure this out. 
And, you know, I, I couldn't talk. I, actually, I had a lot of speech impediments because of it, because your wow. articulators are just, oh, oh, yeah, because the stylohyoids involved, the digastric, so my tongue is asymmetrical. Oh. My lips only, like the slide I give is, you have nine muscles to make P, to say P, huh. uh, that have to coordinate for both yeah. action and release. And um, I have like seven out of those nine. Actually, I think, sorry, I think I got the ratio wrong. I can look it up. Anyway, I have the majority of the muscles required to say P, not functional. So mm -hmm. I had to rewire. So the read the papers, this is what got me into the neuroscience of singing is the only model, and I was told this by a, a MD who suggested it. He said, um, look, at, look into phantom limb pain. And I was like, okay, that's sort oh. of weird. Because phantom limb patients, you know, you have basically your central nervous system still mm -hmm. thinks there's a limb there, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And he said, you know, your central nervous system still thinks that your face, your, your muscles are there. Doing, yeah. <laughs> can do what they can still do. And he said, so what we have to do with phantom limb patients is sort of we use mirror therapy. That's mm -hmm. one thing they use. Oh. Um, so he said, try mirror therapy and see if you can you know, uh, quiet some of those muscles and, and just use your central nervous system rather than the peripheral, which is what, you know, the muscles are to sort mm -hmm. of re remap. It's basically a remapping remap, yep. of mm -hmm. your physiology. And so it was just slow. You know, mm -hmm. P was the, the funniest thing is the first gig I got post-process was from a great friend of mine, uh, Eugene Broncoviano. He was a great, he's a great baritone. He was actually in the Bohem on Broadway and mm. and he was super supportive and he he said I have a gig for you I'm doing this house concert let's do the Papagena Papagena duet <laughs> oh, oh. oh no of all and, things of all things and I was like dude are you what? kidding me no no but um it made me practice P and I can mm -hmm. still say P the old way P P so there's this my brain remembers the old uh -huh. way and then the new way. So I'm basically recruiting P, like different muscles, say yeah. P. Um, and it's, it's, this then got me into what I, you know, songbirds and how we learn to, to vocalize and what those signals are about. And it's an auditory, like I had to hear how I wanted to say P the correct muscles wouldn't recruit, right? Mm -hmm. And then I just keep thinking it, keep thinking it. And it, I, I literally, I sat in front of the mirror going, pee, 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 but, you, know? you know, what an amazing thing for you to also learn, I think, as a tool for your singing students. Oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, how often have we ever in a voice lesson maybe suggested that a student go back to the poor sound and reproduce right. the poor sound and then reproduce the sound difference that we just made and and you know so that it's replicable so that the actual new task is is there i mean what a what a lesson for your own pedagogy and to be able to communicate to other teachers absolutely i mean i think it taught me so much about what i i mean i call it upstream but it's like it opened a whole new world of of why we vocalize and how we vocalize from a different place because I had a big part of the function. Now the other part of, of the damage is because the digastric and stylohyoid muscles are enervated by the seventh cranial nerve. Um, 
I lost about a perfect fifth in the top of my range. Oh, uh, wow. And, and so it was funny because I looked up other singers who have experienced this. Of course, there's not a lot. Uh, mm. I couldn't, but I found one. And he actually wrote a book that I bought on eBay. His name is Axel Schutz. I don't know if you ever heard of oh, him. Oh, I've heard this name. Yes, yes. So in the, in the 1920s and 30s, he was sort of a well-known leader singer, yes. mostly concert singer. He was a tenor. He got an acoustic neuroma, which is a, a tumor right behind the ear. And when they removed it, they damaged his seventh uh, cranial this nerve. This happened to yeah. one of my students' fathers last year. He had yes. that same thing. Um yeah, uh, all these weird things are coming back because I actually I had a student who had Bell's palsy last year, but yeah. like the sort of he took the steroids and whatever, and about a week later was essentially exactly. you know fine. Um, yeah, but uh, I do I do know yes a, yes actually anyway sorry go on back. Yeah. And, oh no no so what happened to him is he's obviously stopped for a while just like I did, mm -hmm. but he became a baritone. Because he oh. lost the top of his brain. Yeah. Uh, I have asked different laryngologists, physiologists. I mean, now I know, I think I have like a little, because it's contracting, like a little laryngeal asymmetry. So mm. part of my journey, I hate that word, sorry. <laughs> but what, anyway, but was to, to sort of figure out, you know, a, and this is why Stephen Smith was so helpful for me because he has sure. these kinds of really simple reductionist exercises. Hi. So I would try to sort of sense, you know, my adduction, right? Just simple uh, and where that felt. And I still didn't get back my entire range at all, yeah. but I definitely extended it. And it's continuing. I was actually going to post on Facebook. It's like I've got a sustained high D for the first time ever since I had Bell's palsy just in the past month. Just awesome. because I still work, I still yeah. work at it. <laughs> you know, I'm still determined to sort of, you know, keep figuring out is this possible? You know, yeah. Um, and still, yeah, so. and still singing, and I mean, and and yeah. that's that's just a, a remarkable. You know, I I relate to your story so much for, for different reasons. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's just a it's a great testament to sort of not giving up continuing through and again most of us at some point are gonna run into some kind of voice thing that's gonna make things different right and we all need to learn to we, we got to destigmatize that and because it doesn't automatically mean that somebody has bad yeah. technique yeah, exactly. I love that sentence. Yes, because the, the stigma, you know, because then your opportunities are lost. Right. And and that mm -hmm. we can hang our hat on that. And then it becomes a psychological tumbling, you know, down the hill thing, you know. Yes. Um, so that's part of what I'm trying to do. I, there was an article in Classical Singer just out this month that, that was sort of I don't know if you saw that. It was I, about I this. Yeah. So it was about me and this journey in a way because they have a series now called overcoming adversity oh okay and it's a great series for that purpose who, I'm who so wrote glad. it uh oh shoot michelle latour oh okay yeah heidi uh so how so 
you obviously are doing some teaching now, not only just private yeah. studio stuff, but you teach some at, at the conservatory and and yeah. um, both in adult education. You also are now teaching some anatomy and physiology courses, ped courses, whatever. How did yeah. you end up coming to the biofeedback stuff? Like, when did that sort uh-huh. of become part of your process, part of your your teaching and and just knowledge base? I mean, obviously you were probably aware of it from way back, but. Yeah, I mean, I was being a scientist, you know, as soon as spectrograph and Miller had some rudimentary spectrographs in his lab. So it was something and, you know, I downloaded Pratt probably in my, you know, you know, it was one of those things that I I was a dabbler, you Mm -hmm. know, and then Don Miller's book came out. And so I was definitely a dabbler just because, you know, science people like to dabble. Sure. Um, But. It really, the biofeedback part was part of my retraining when I got paralysis because I thought, oh, you know, I don't have a teacher here. You know, I don't have someone to give me feedback on my sounds. And it was mostly for vowels, oddly enough. It was um, because my tongue was asymmetrical and I sort of had this kind of muddiness to my sound when I was talking. And so I can regenerate it. Yeah. So it was sort of you know, let me look and, and just see how I can play with new shapes. So it was, it was much more of that idea. Um, and then, um, I noticed like, Oh, it was really cool. I could see when, if in a phrase I wasn't vibrating through it, you know, something that you can not always perceive, right? Like I, I found it sort of like, I'm looking at other things in addition to what I was there doing. So it was sort of like, Oh, it was sort of a light bulb went off. It's like, oh, I can really see that my vibrato is not consistent here or it's not centered on the pitch. And and so it was just through that exercise that serendipitously I saw another purpose in it. And I, I first started to do it um, with students, but the, the big spectrograph was way too overwhelming because there's, you know, all the overtones and people who are just beginners or, you know, especially those who I, I work a lot with adult amateurs, you know, it was just a little overwhelming. So I found an app that had just what I say linear fundamental only and and color coded. And that, that every student that saw that was just like loved it because, you know, they could see that, um, you know, they were under pitch or whatever and they would correct it in real time. And it, it just started to be a natural part of every my studio. And I have not had one unsuccessful point with that because technically if someone is under pitch, I find there's a big psychological thing. They think they're thinking the wrong pitch, right? So it's like, oh, think higher. It's like, no, it has nothing to do with how their brain is processing pitch. There's something from brain to motor where it's a little micro tension that, you know, is sort of causing that. But our directives are usually like, oh, you're flat. Okay, I'm going to think higher. And that's yeah. not the right way. But if they watch this little screen like a video game, it, it it's, a, you know, it, it works. It, they, they correct it. And um, then I started reading about biofeedback and how singing is, is really the ideal, um, you know, action that will respond to that with visual cortex stimulation to to um correct a complex physiological action absolutely so so that's that's how it sort of got in and then i I realized its limitations as well so the the paper and and my talk are going to talk about what 
is, you know, statistically successful application of, of biofeedback. Okay, so oh, what is the what is the title of the talk and what day are you presenting at National? Do you know oh, off the top ah, of your head? Uh, I, I think can look. off the Hold top on. of my head. I can it, look. I, I think it's it. 9.45 a.m. at on Saturday is what I that remember. Sounds right. oh, okay. That sounds right. Yes. Yeah, and it's mobile apps. No, wait. No, it has biofeedback in it, doesn't Bio, it? Mobile apps, yeah, biofeedback and vocal pedagogy using mobile apps. Because I wanted something that that was user-friendly, that every yeah. student can talk. You know, no one, I mean, we love Voce Vista, but not everyone wants that. So we want something on our phones that we can, you know. <laughs> You'll appreciate this because you understand what I mean, but it... I don't think there are I think there are very few who actually realize particularly in Bodo's new version mm-hmm. just how many complex features there are that are there that you could <laughs> unpack uh yeah. and it's, yeah yeah it it's it can be overwhelming I mean that new update I still haven't wrapped my head around yet you know it's like I need a, I need him to come to my house and stay overnight for <laughs> tutorial. You know, have a sleepover party for Voce Vista. Well, uh, he's a cool enough dude. He'd probably do it. Um, <laughs> uh, Sarah likes to joke that Bodo is my uh, man crush. Um, but uh, uh, he 100% is. Oh. <laughs> you you fanboy every time. <laughs> I need to fanboy be a- thing. Yeah. Well, no, he's di- di- dish Sarah, a dish. Uh, he just gets all giggly. <laughs> I, it's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. He just sits there and giggles. If you listen to our episode with him, I think he, he giggles through like half of it. <laughs> Does he giggle like an octave up too? That's that's the yes. real spark of a fanboy. Okay. Yes, oh yes. yeah, I'm. I'm... It's a very entertaining experience for me personally. Okay. There you go. <laughs> I don't yeah. know about the rest of y'all out there, but I enjoyed myself. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's very yeah. true. So in this in this also, um, do you have a publication date yet for the article? Just out of curiosity. Um, I think they said fall. You know, they're so backlogged. Oh no, at I know. Journalists, no, trust me. I the the yeah. article. I have an article coming out March April, and oh. I wrote it in when did I yeah. write it? Summer of. It was a while. It back was. It was. A, it, it was a hot minute ago. Yeah. We talked about it like last yeah. year. And, that, <laughs> and so I, I actually had to edit it because apps change all the time. So yeah. I had to put in. You know, this is because I made a table of comparative things, and I was like, yeah, this it's is wonderful." Between my tests were between 2016 and 18. You know, I submitted yeah. it in June of 2019 and it's going to be published. So who knows? None of that could be relevant. But I, what my point of the paper was to really focus on the application of what mobile apps can do. Whatever app you choose to use, it'll be analogous, right? You'll you'll have it it's just may not be that the apps that are, are listed are the ideal ones when, you know, three years from now, because every week there's new, sure. new things. So, so right now, features. you know, here we are in 2020, at the beginning of 2020. Um, mm-hmm. Are there one or two mobile apps right now? And we're talking about basically mobile spectrogram kind of apps, vocal fam. Are there one or two apps that you would recommend and sort of put your <laughs> Heidi Moss seal of approval on and maybe, <laughs> and maybe one or two that you are not so fond of? Uh, yes. Yeah. So my favorite one, which is unfortunately, 
I'm struggling to get it updated for new uh, Mac iOS. That's why I wanted, I'm hoping this, this, because, uh, you know, like when you do Catalina, Voce Vista was a mess. Oh, for a I haven't. I've, I still haven't. I'm not going to do it until, I, yeah. I don't even know when. I No. Right. So the same thing happened with my favorite app with the most recent iOS. So I'm still oh. working yeah, of, on the phone. It was called Pitch Lab by Carl Morton. And uh-huh. why I loved it is because, the visual is so it uh, it's color coded for frequency, which adds okay. an additional input to the brain of you know of where you're at. Uh, so you can see, okay, I'm a little blue green, not blue, and so that you know rather than just looking at a line. So I liked that additional input, and it's linear, fundamental only. You don't get um, overtone background, so you can really clearly see. Uh, you know, where, uh, the, you know, all the, you know, just a straight vocal passage. The other thing it's super sensitive. So I could see in my paper, one of my favorite examples was I had a student who was working on Un Beldi for an audition, mm-hmm. something I will never sing, but, um, but you know, the, it's something that I heard as a teacher that was happening where I felt like it wasn't quite legato in between the lines, but you know, nope. how do you describe that technically or pedagogically? Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't really vibrating between that, you know, and so I had her look at the app and honestly, it was within a minute she could, you know, wiggle, right. And wiggle in between. And it was like, she got something that I don't think it would, it would taken, it would have taken a long time to try to address that technically because it was something that she couldn't feel and couldn't quite hear because it happened so fast. Um, so things like that were were revolutionary in the, in that way. And same with onsets. You know, a lot of people want to. You know, the onset release thing is a very Millery thing. Um, and you know, starting right on the pitch and vibrating immediately right on the pitch. You can see that so clearly in this app that it's it's you know it picks up every little detail as I, well as yeah. I loved that part of the paper where you go into the different different parts um that you use it for for the pitch accuracy for vibrato for onset and it's so funny and i love that you've actually broken it down and actually brought sort of a a, an empirical laying out of it and that kind of thing because i've been talking about these talking points for years but uh sometimes i just get distracted by other things and would would never have taken the time to actually write all this out would i have sarah (laughs) yeah i mean yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sure so many pedagogues on our groups do this all the time, right? It's just, yeah. I think my point of this paper wasn't to like revolutionize that concept. It was to give something to the students. That's why Absolutely. I this, well, it's great to have it all together, though. It's great to have it all together and laid out. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think students need to not be afraid of it because I think that's the other thing. My other favorite story about Pitch Lab is I was teaching voice at Google, which is a great gig if you can I get it. I saw that in your bio. Voice at Google. All right. Yeah, that's a perk for employees along with the awesome food, which I was lucky to get. But what they have this Future job, where, Sarah. Future job. I know, right? Talk about a dream job. It's aw- and then you bike around on the Google bikes. It's from one campus to the Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. What? Oh, yeah. Trying my new life goals right now. I was going to say, Sarah, this literally sounds like a life goal for Vocal Fam. Bike around the Google campus Google. as the Google voice teacher eating lunch in the Google what? cafeteria. Eating oh, yeah. The food is ridiculous. It's like, it's, 
it's about anything for food. Yeah, you feel so guilty. It's like, oh, the chef is, you know, I want to ride up to the sushi bar. I want to, you know, go to the smoothie bar. I want to go to the, yeah, it's ridiculous. Did they have muffins anywhere? (laughs) Oh, are you kidding me? You could, they had every flavor of muffin. Yeah. uh, yeah. Okay, sorry, that was for Sarah. Are you a muffin muffin guy? Who's a muffin person? Sarah. Oh, What's your what's your favorite? I love muffins. Right now, I'm on a um a lemon poppy seed kick where I do like a little lemon glaze on top. Oh, okay. So at Nats, I will bring you some lemon poppy muffins. What amazing! Oh yeah, yeah. That's gonna be my. I, I'm writing this down actually. I love muffins. Um, baking and Yeah. So Google. My favorite thing about Google is because it's a perk. The spectrum of people who sign up is yeah. just is like. So my favorite story is I had this this Russian uh, programmer who walked in and hit, you know the first question is well you know what do you want to do why are you here and yeah. he's like he wanted to learn a, I shouldn't do the accent I love yeah. doing no, accents I got you I, I got you I got you <laughs> I have to resist um, but uh, he he wanted to learn do some rap Russian rap and he played it me the Russian rap music it. it was awesome it was so cool. And I was like, awesome, totally. So we just, I just wanted to start, you know, with pitch matching, you know, just so he could not pitch match. I would press it and he would go like for every single, no, no matter what I like, that's not even a pitch. (laughs) Yeah. But what I realized, you know, I, I love reading about, this is something else I want to write about Like the, you know, not, I knew this from reading papers that, True amusia is very rare. Very rare, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I knew that if he likes music and he, you know, it's probably not that. It's a mind to motor thing. So yeah. we started out in his speaking range, looking at saying, okay, just say something. You know, go, whoa, you know, what's up? You know, into, yeah. into the app. And so he could see the pitch. And then you start sustaining in his pit speaking range, always looking. And then we went, you know, we built from that. By the end of eight weeks, not only did he get his Russian rap, he wanted to sing Kadomio Ben for the next what? session. And he did. He did Kadomio Ben in the recital. So he went from not matching pitch. At all. But, at Everybody all, should sing Kadomio Ben. Anyway, oh Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that, so anyway, that was, that was... I can't. I can't. I know. Sorry. I know. Um... Yeah, twenty-four Italian songs. Go. No, go, specifically. Go. He doesn't need any encouragement on Caro Mio Ben. Specifically, <laughs> Caro Mio Ben. I just have this general life philosophy that everyone should sing Caro Mio Ben at some point. He does just like having done, taken many, many classes with him. Uh, every single one at some point is going to have a day that just just features Caro Mio Ben. Oh, <laughs> wow, that's good to know. Yeah, just just if y'all were ever curious, what is it like to study? <laughs> Listen, the ultimate in pure vowels, descending lines, and legato. You really don't need to know how to do anything else as a classical singer. Yep. It it has it all. It has it all. Plus, it has that... See? And there there it is. You all need an... We all need more... And anyway. some uh, in 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 the singing. That, exactly. That's that's what the phrase needs. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, so that <laughs> Sarah's like, okay, I can't handle this I just, this I just know you don't need any encouragement in this this field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love so, encouragement, anyway. Yeah. 
anyway, so that that was an application too, where you know people think, oh, this person's you know can't match pitch. What are I going to do? And you, it's just adding another. You know, we're all synesthetes in a way. You know, mm -hmm. all of our and so adding a visual just gives them another tool, and and it it. it was amazing. So anyway, yeah. that's why I say never give up on a student if they can't match pitch. I you know? love it. And I think the visual feedback for somebody like that is is brilliant. I mean, yes. a absolutely I brilliant. Yeah. Um, I know you have a whole bunch of other things that you also like work on in your mind and other things. Are, are, what, what do you? <laughs> what are some other things you sort of have like 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 coming up? You know, in, 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 that you're interested in looking at. I'm just uh, curious. God, I mean, I am so obsessed i i think you know sometimes our baggage is our best friend um yeah, yeah. and for me there were so many things about focusing on the physicality of singing that made me crazy because mm. uh and I, it's important i teach that way i mean i know we need that what i call you know i call it cart before the horse pedagogy where it's like yeah. we need to focus on what what we're doing or what, how is it happening? But I knew that got in my way. I mean, there's a lot of thinky singers. I think I was a thinky singer where I would, yeah, where I'd be like, okay, where, what's this doing? And what's my breath yeah. doing? And I'm, and so, I'm looking at another one across the, the, the <laughs> table here. She's just sinking down beneath even, her chair. Uh huh. Just don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Literally I've taught Sarah one total voice lesson. And, one. And, it was and, one very and, and practically the lesson. entire time was no, stop. Just let, let's stop. No, just stop thinking no no just do it yeah yeah, yeah. so we so i decided to sort of research like what i mean the, the big what what how why do we do this and you know yeah. so it got me into the neuroscience i mean especially since i was already reading reading about it when i had my injury and it just it, it's a rabbit hole obviously you know even you know the motor ideas and so i have about you know five or six papers I want to write on different elements of what I call up the upstream actions and how we can use what we know about how the brain processes vocalization pedagogically. So that's sort of my holy grail is sort of translating, Love you know, it. one field, for example, is vocal learning. So I, I actually wrote a blog for um, Naked Singer, Naked uh -huh. Vocalist, rather. Uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. It's a funny one. But, you know, our vocal vocal brains, vocal learning brains are not – uh, don't come from our nearest primate ancestors. We talk about laryngeal evolution, but there's something called convergent evolution, and we're more like songbirds. And there's a guy, yeah, there's a guy at Rockefeller University, my old home, who Eric Jarvis, who you know really took off in this field. I communicate with him, um, so I'm really lucky that I get to talk to experts in the field and. So basically, uh, vocal learners can all, the, the hallmark of it is that they can all um, hear sounds and then process it and create novel permutations of that, right? So a dog, for example, you can say a dog barks. Yeah. You, can tell it, you can tell it to sit or fetch, but it can't say, all right, I'll go do that, yeah. bro. <laughs> Um, so same with chimps, but, but birds, it, we have analogous structures at the macro and micro level. It's, it's overwhelmingly cool. 
Uh, and I won't go into all of it because how convergent evolution works. And but I will tell you that how it happened was was random duplication of the motor pathway for limbs. So we all think of gesturing when we speak. And I don't know if anyone read the paper on Parkinson's singing helps Parkinson's patients with gait with mm-hmm. how they walk. Mm-hmm. And it's it's because all of our motor for our limbs are neighboring to the vocal learning pathway. So if you strengthen the singing neurons, you're going to strengthen some of the gait neurons in Parkinson patients. Phenomenal. Um, yeah. But the key hallmark of how I apply that to pedagogy is they have done now even functional studies. One of the papers I quote in, I'm already writing this, is there was a paper in Nature that showed infants, uh, how they learn to speak is analogous to how songbirds learn to sing. And the key thing, and I have I have two students who want to learn songbird style, and I'm actually teaching them that way um, because you have a tutor and you do it in small segments, um, repetition in, of those small segments, and then you piece it together. But it's an auditory process. The whole thing is auditory. And my theory is that sheet music is a killer for singers because we're getting a visual input that doesn't represent what the voice does. So we get psychological hangups, for example, of distance of an interval, which is not a realistic distance. Sure. We also get quantal representation of notes on a piano and on a page. Our voice isn't quantal in the same way. So people will micro articulate with their glottis notes, right? People will will look up or reach for a large interval when we know it's really just a minute action. We've we've created a psychological barrier to the mechanism by visual that does not fully represent what we're doing. You know what I love about that? That's actually very similar to the rationale behind why with my singing students I mm-hmm. never use the word passaggio at all in a voice lesson. Yep. Me neither. Yay. And I, I do think that there is no passaggio because right. it, it, put, it plants a seed of yes. something. And as soon as you get dynamic laryngeal registration going and working and you understand passive vowel migration, thank you, Ken. Right. You don't thank you, Ken. You don't need to, you don't need any of those words. Exactly. They may happen to notice a shift, a timbral shift. Fine. Great. Yeah. Okay. Great. Observe it. Observe it. But as soon as you start calling it a name, a thing, a name and whatever, all of a sudden their reptilian brain takes over and they go, I have a thing there. Of a thing. I can't right. sing there. Yeah. Well, and right. it's sort of like telling, this is why I don't do this anymore either. I don't ever tell anybody they've got tongue tension. Exactly. I mean, because this, you know what? How about uh, every every single time? This is sorry. This is me just getting soapboxy no, for just a second. You're, you're speaking my language. We've said this on the podcast before, yeah. uh, but I, I every time I see a post about oh, I just can't get my students to get rid of their tongue tension. I just want to say, and I don't, because I've learned how to interact on social media over the years, and sometimes non-engaging is the right engaging. Yeah, almost always. But I just, I've learned, I, I, I want to just shout it from the rooftops, if you'd stop talking about their tongue, it would get better. 
Exactly. And also a completely relaxed tongue, you would die. Exactly. (laughs) Just like if you had completely relaxed posture, you would fall over. Right. And even that term is like, just relax, relax. You know, it's like, I'm more tense when someone tells me to relax. Exactly. Yeah. It's Yeah. So I think our our language as pedagogues definitely needs to change. I even think about chest and head register because people think of it as quantal. They think of it as two separate things. They don't see it as as this dance and this grayscale and these ratios that it's like, no, don't say that anymore. Even mode one and mode two, I know that's the thing. But again, if you quantalize anything, people put it in this box. We don't use it. two, Two events. The other thing that I learned from birds is... Dopamine, which is our happy neurotransmitter, mm-hmm. uh, solidifies connect neural connections and learning. So if you have a negative association with learning, your brain will just put it in the garbage can. So this whole old school of like, let's whip you into, you yeah. know, criticism. I mean, I don't know. I had coaches who would just like stop me at every note and just like, no, you know, do it again. And it's like, no wonder I didn't improve. So I really try. That's why I have this, you know, this You Are a Great Singer mug to always do, you know, Stephen Smith actually had the great line. He said, if I say to you, he didn't like don't directives. He said, if I say to you, don't think of a woman in a red dress. Of course, what is your brain going to do? Imagine Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I really have worked hard now to give only positive directives. If there's something that's not working, I'll find something that does and then transfer that to what's not working rather than like, let's say this. And and it, it, you know, these are all, all small changes, but I do see the results. I say it's making singers better faster. You know, yeah. all of these little tools. That point right there was one of my favorite things early on in the article that you said. I read it in the article. And and it's so funny because Sarah and I have a piece that's coming out together. Oh, yeah, Sarah! On on the teaching and learning of voice acoustics. Mm -hmm. And our take-home point is you don't need to know acoustics to teach well or sing well. But if you do and you understand both perception and acoustics, it will make you a better teacher faster. Yes. Praise. And, you know, and really that's the, that's the thing. I mean, because let's face it. I mean, you know, I remember learning so much about voices by the fact that I sat in a listening lab in undergrad for hours and hours and hours with opera scores and, and LPs. For those yeah. of you who are not a, of my age, those were big black discs that got pressed and they had little little grains in them and you put a needle on them and they did a circle and it made noise. Just describing a record. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's literally what I'm describing. An LP, yeah. a long you know play what record. Records are. Um, yes, but okay. some of our uh, anyway. They're back in vogue now. Don't oh, that's you know true. This? That's true. They sell them at Target now. Yeah, right? at yeah. Target. Yeah, that's, there's been a huge resurgence of people listening to vinyls. Well, yeah. so if it's at Target, so the hipsters basically lost, is what you're telling me. Exactly, yeah. Like, cause yeah, it, yeah. It, because it was a hipster thing back about 12, 15 years ago, and if it's at Target, the hipsters lost. Every- 
Yeah. But Target is a wonderful magical place. <laughs> right. So I just cracked chill. me up. Anyway. I, I do I do love love me a good Target run. Target's great. Like I can get everything I need at Target. I think yeah. if I had to live in a store, it would probably be Target. Yeah. Oh Let's get goodness. them to sponsor this podcast now. If, right? if, Target, if anyone, Target included, us. would like to sponsor the Vocal Fry podcast. <laughs> Someone, if whoever makes vinyls wants to sponsor us, oh yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah there, there we go. Related. Um, so yeah. Heidi, as you know, we are yeah. a a uh, sort of big time voice ped and science podcast, but also a pop culture yeah. podcast. Do you have Ooh. any um, TV oh. or movie loves that you have, or any book series that you love, yeah. or any podcasts that you love, or or anything that you would oh, like to share with the vocal fam? I know. I knew this was coming and sort of, because I know you guys are like Marvel and Star Trek and Star oh, anything. Listen, you can share so anything. I, I know. I, I, I am sadly a very boring human. I, that I'm, is um, not true. That's not true. I mean, my, okay, I love 80s music. So okay. like, I am a new, I dance to new, new wave in my kitchen with my husband love all the time. And our, our kids are mortified you know love um, it i'm actually gonna go see adam ant in march so i'm really excited about that fantastic so <laughs> yeah but as far as movies go i don't watch a lot of movies i love uh but i do read a lot so i like nonfiction. so i really think if everyone read sapiens they would be better humans because it just gives you perspective it's basically about the social history of our species starting with oh, okay. the dawn but what it what, like some of my favorite yeah i mean there's just so many good quotes there that i think would heal so many divides because then you just realize like this is all an illusion even so money money is a myth yeah. who is this sapiens by oh his name is like yuval he has a very weird name hold on just google it uh, yes yeah, so if, well, if you I'm, want to read this book just google sapiens. yeah they, and he also wrote Homo Deus, so my husband's ahead of me. He he read Sapiens already, um, and a brief history of humankind. So is Yuval Noah Harari. There we go. I, wow. I really think it should be mandatory reading for any Sapien because, as I said, it just it'll just put perspective on everything we're doing and. And I don't know. It and I'm just- so glad um, you actually just referenced, because I also do want to let the vocal fam know, Heidi's husband is also a marvelous composer. And um, uh-huh. one of his works in particular, Here Bullet, has garnered yeah. quite a bit of performances recently, um, as well as yeah. being the subject of a soon-to-come dissertation. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, look at you doing your homework. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, just tell us a little bit about your husband's vocal music, particularly about Kurt's vocal music. Oh, my God. Ah, well, I should tell you the courtship, too, just because we are both divorced. It was really, we had really horrible, sad stories sure. in our, um, uh, and... We were, and I was involved in a, a new, I do a lot of new music. I love new music. I love working with composers. And so I was in a trio and we were performing and we were performing one of his pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing that my uh, colleague, who's a soprano also, said to me, she's like, he is a soprano lover. He is so good <laughs> at posing for sopranos you know he just has this, this way and so that that stuck in my head you know it's like that's sort of an odd way to, to talk about him but okay uh, but he did a lot of vocal music and then 
you know, that's how we met. Um, and of course, when we met, he did, this was now, gosh, it's eight years now. Um, but he's just, oh, he, he wrote for, uh, he was a composer in residence for St. Grace Cathedral. So he did a lot of choral mm. sacred music. So he just knew voices. I just think he has a natural, you know, he's different enough that you say, oh, this is interesting, but it's not atonal. It's not, yeah. it's very, He's very French impressionistic. I always oh, like, I want to get him a little beret and mustache and just <laughs> see, walk around and say, yes, yes, I'm like, uh, you know, you know, sort of like Ravel or, or Poulenc or something like okay. that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, thank you for the shout out for him. I'm so proud of him. He works so hard um, seeing how composers work. I said, I want to put a couch in his brain <laughs> sometimes <laughs> because I want to see. He does his composition, even though he teaches, he, he's a music professor, he teaches theory and piano. He was a pianist to begin with. Mm. Uh, in the lineage of Liszt, I actually just got him. So Liszt taught some guy who taught Claudio Arau, who taught his teacher. So I that's mean, his cool. this is still, I wish vo vocalists, <laughs> uh, singers don't talk about Did this that? often anymore. I mean, uh, uh, you know, yeah. but, but this yeah. is still, every pianist that I know can basically chart their lineage. Um, yeah. singers aren't quite as good about it uh, sometimes um, no. yeah yeah uh, yeah. it sort of gives you I don't know there's something there is something holy about it you know the way it's like oh yeah, well, this is where let me tell you what's a little weird though what becomes a little weird is if one of your voice students as one of mine did last year learn that oh. lineage is a thing and then charts your own Oh shoot! <laughs> That's a weird, That's especially when you've really not done it. Yeah, you're I like about that. Well, okay then. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. Do you have a tree now? Like tell dish. What's your lineage? I I don't know. I I I forget. One of my I think he ended up doing it by the fact that one of my teachers had studied with Suze for quite a long time, and then that lineage was fairly easy to trace. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's how he did it. But any, anyway. Yeah. No, it's a fun because, you know, it, we are sometimes an oral history. Right. And so there is something yeah. said for, for that passing on of, you know, what little bit do we know that we're keeping from, you know, I know I keep a lot from Stephen Smith, for example. I mean, I, and, I, and I know I talk about Miller, but. I say I wouldn't have been able to sing again if it weren't for Steven because he taught me that I can reduce, be reductionist and that's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. I don't, and so anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I attribute so much of my recovery to, to my current teacher, even though I haven't been yeah. up for a lesson in like two years, I'm a terrible person. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, you know, I remember one of the things he said to me, one of the things that Jerry said to me when I, when I first got up there for my first session was saying that like, basically, he was like, you know, neither of us have anything to lose. Let's just play. And that that's become such a huge part of my just philosophy of voice teaching. Um, yeah. Yes. And I'm with you. And that's the other neuroscience. I, do, I have a class of, of adult students. We don't do any technique. It's all play because our vocalizations are rooted in a communication. And so, like, I'll have someone, if, I always say, like, if yeah. you... We're so literal sometimes with our interpretations. And so, for example, Nachtlundträume, right? Everyone wants to be like, oh, I'm so placid and, you know, <laughs> but that will result oh, in sort of low energy phonation. So if I have yeah. people like, 
I say, pretend you're a tiger and you're a CEO and, you know, you're telling your tiger friends something off the wall crazy. Oh, yeah. I'll get the sound I want, you know, even if it's off. And they'll be like, but it's not the text, honey. I'm like, I said, that's in your subconscious. You've done your translation. Yeah. You know the words. Let's give something else so that your voice can just do what it's what meant is, to yeah. do. You know? Yes. Play, play, play. Absolutely. It's fun, too. Absolutely. Anyway. I totally agree. Yeah. Heidi Moss, you are okay. an inspiration and a gem you and are. a brilliant Thank human you. being. Oh, no, um, you're so Thank you for having me. I've been fans for a long time. Well, yeah, we uh, we we enjoy what we do. We have a very yeah, you're so we good. have a very dedicated, loyal, small listening body, and and we're very thankful for yeah. every member of the Vocal Fam who not only listens in but who then comes and joins us on the podcast. And yeah, and we've got I a love- we've got a whole bunch of them coming up because this is in a it's series a of a whole bunch of Nats National e- e- episodes that are coming this. forth uh, over the next two I months. I can't wait. I can't um, wait. I'm 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 a, a loyal listener, so I can't wait. Oh Yay. well, thank thanks you for for, for, for that. Um, and yeah, thanks for being with us. Um, this has been yes. awesome. Um, this will this will this will drop um, next Friday. So the sixth okay. or sixth or seventh or whatever Friday is. Um, this will this will get loaded. I don't even know. Yeah, whenever that right. whatever I, next Friday. Whenever is. that day is. Yeah. Eh, whatever. Okay. Uh, th- Heidi, day. thank you, Sarah. Thank I'll you. talk to you later. Thank you, thank you Sarah. Bye, everybody. Bye, thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Picard, PhD. Now you'll learn something real nerdy on our show as we go to Dr. Glasner's lab in section 31. Da, 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 da. He goes, but it is connected. Sarah watched Best of Both Worlds last night. Nice. You're good. How's everybody Saturday? Good? I just taught three lessons. <laughs> On a Saturday. Oi. Early career, that. man. Trying to pay off those student loans. I feel that. I feel that. I mean, I'm going to be paying off. One was stu- a transgender client. Ah, fantastic. That I did not oh, find yeah. out about until she came in. Oh. Okay. We're that actually, was... uh, I don't want to, I don't want to give away all of our guests that are upcoming, but we have scheduled a recording session with one Dr. Lorraine Sims. Uh, Very nice. Coming up, which I'm sure will have a certain focus on that teaching. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, of that particular population of humans. Uh, anyway, so here we are, Picard PhD, episode three. And I just want to start out yeah. by just saying this episode really is the end of act one. Absolutely. According to Michael Shabon, according to Akiva Goldsman, the two showrunners, this is the end of Act One. We've basically watched three parts of one episode, not I believe three that. episodes. So now that we've basically taken three episodes to set everything up and assemble the crew and have a little bit of more of the, okay, this is what we're doing. How do we feel about what we're doing? <laughs> I like what we're doing. Y'all, I don't, I don't know how y'all felt about this character. The Rafi, she got on my nerves so much. Why? Like, honestly, you want to know what I think it came down to? 
how she kept referring to him as JL. <laughs> I, I was going to ask what you guys thought from, about JL. From the second she called him JL, I was like, what is wrong with you? Have some respect. Sarah, that's the most... <laughs> That's the I most Sarah. Think that was half of it. That's the most Sarah answer ever. ever because you love, you love the blonde, right? The blonde, I like her fine. I yeah. was not surprised that she came. Um, I actually like if I had to pick a favorite character, it'd probably be his two Romulan companions. That I really yeah. actually wanted them to come. Can we talk about that scene for a second? I thought that was. I wanted them to come. I really did. Well. Picard getting thrown on the couch. I know. Oh, because like he goes to try and help. Like I just think we constantly are getting these reminders that like no, Picard is not the fighter in this show. Like you know he's old. Like I think he constantly is running into these reminders that what he's walking back into is not what he was. Oh my god! Yeah, this guy here like heart changing. Hurt. Yeah, he's just old. <sighs> Again, made my heart sad. He is. He got tossed like a rag doll. He did. He, he did. He did. I think everyone was like, where is Worf when you need him to protect the captain? <laughs> I know. That's why he needed to take his friends on this trip with him. He needs someone who can fight. Well, I he's going to get a samurai Romulan soon. In the, ne- in the next episode, apparently. <laughs> or Vulcan. I don't even oh. know. I don't know. Probably I've been wrong. making the assumption that that character is Vulcan. Okay. We'll see. I I could be making a huge mistake in that assumption. But I've been making the... Well, ass- the, the camp... Well, I mean, now we're talking about the next episode, but I think that the camp looks like it's a Romulan outpost. Yes. And for some reason, I still was making the assumption that that particular character was Vulcan. Hmm. But we'll see. Obviously, uh, it was interesting to me. No, Will Riker and Deanna Troy yet. No. Yeah, they're really holding off on that. And yet, now we're yeah. off-world already. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're gonna play a bigger part than expected. I'd be okay with. I'd, that'd be fine with me. Or we should be getting seven soon, though. Yes, I am assuming that in the next episode or two, we'll be getting seven of nine. Um, how'd we feel? Okay, Sarah, you can't really respond to this. Josh, how'd you feel about the reintroduction of Hugh? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I, uh, I thought, I mean, it fits with the, it, it's, it fits with canon, right? Like yes. he's, uh, he was separated from the collective. Then he was with the group with Lore. Um, and then like he was in books and stuff, but beyond that, he's, you know, kind of just out there. I kind of loved that. He's the executive director of the reclamation project. Totally. I mean, I thought that was like a little bit of a win for Hugh, you know, that he sort of never maybe really got in next gen. He sort of got it in next gen in, in descent part two, but I mean, I thought this was a nice sort of treatment for Hugh. If we're gonna if we're gonna be going sort of with this pro Borg former Borg message, totally. I, I, I kind of like that Hugh is heading up the project. Okay, can we talk about the woman with the cards? That was intense. oh, I loved that. I love that scene. Oh. But how about the fact that all of the all of like the you know locked Other up people? former Borg are like. Romulans? 
This is I yeah. I said last week I think that we're going to get some sort of like Borg origin story and there's going to be I'm something cool really messed up between the Romulans and the Borg. Yeah, because what it. was she even asking her about? Uh yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's some sort of shared mythology. Right, except that it really appears to just be an oral history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it made it seem as if what she was attempting it was also very interesting the I felt and it was basically in that scene her introducing herself as an anthropologist. Mhm. I mean, yeah. So I it, just just trying to create this collective history I mean, you might be right, Josh, this idea of a Borg origin story. I don't know. I, I, still, have to, I still have to process that, that, that scene. That's, um, that was it was very intense. How much you want to bet that wasn't the only card that mattered? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there were more. Got to go back and look at a screenshot of that. I'm certain that the card just with the yin and the yang, the two sisters, was not the only yeah. card that mattered. I'm curious to know, like, how seriously we should take the line, just sort of like, you don't know what they are, or you don't know what they are. You know, like, you don't, they're not what you think they are. Like, are, are we being told that maybe they're not, I mean, maybe they're not synths. Synth. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like the people who attacked Mars? Um, no, the, uh, I mean, Soji and Dosh. Oh. I don't know. I just like that, that leads. And maybe they're just trying to misdirect us, kind of give us a red herring of like, oh, they're not who they think you think they are. You're the destroyer. And I'm just wondering, like, how how much we should read into that? Because I think it could be, I don't know, could play largely into the next few episodes. I have two theories on that. One, the theory is that they're an upgraded Borg who are going to try a new strategy to assimilate everybody and not date as kids. Mm. <laughs> strategy theory two would actually be that by her being the destroyer, the Romulans perhaps did create the Borg which would be interesting. And in doing so, realized what a huge mistake it was actually joining organic tissue and synthetic machinery. Which, if Josh's theory holds, would basically be the play there that the, that the, the, the Jad Vash were created basically to stop that from ever being a thing because in doing mm -hmm. so, they created the Borg. But she could also be seen as the destroyer from the perspective of she's going to destroy all naturally organic life and all life oh. sort of sort of like the, the movie AI where all life gets upgraded to this organic uh, yet synthetic form. Well, I mean, weren't you talking about um, like... Uh, Kurtzman like potentially trying to or you think that Kurtzman is going to try and like tie everything into a little nice little bow 
and we have Discovery going, you know, 800 years in the future or something, and the Federation doesn't exist, probably, that's what we think. Um, and this might be, uh, wow, this would end up being so dystopian. Totally. Well, That'd be sad. And, and he's playing very much on where we are as a society in 2020, mm-hmm. 2019, 2017, Absolutely. 2016, with these two series. And now we're going to get a Section 31 show. I mean, yeah. and by the way, for all of you wonderful vocal fam who are listening, I never said it on the podcast and I meant to. If you're not as into Star Trek deep dives, but you're listening to this segment and you've listened to the theme song about going to Dr. Glasner's lab in Section 31, Section 31 is Starfleet Black Ops Security. <laughs> Sorry, I meant to say that two episodes ago and forgot. <laughs> and here we are. This is why... It happens. This is why... Yeah. Anyway, so here we are. Meant to bring that back. Forgot. Anyway, I'm really excited to see where we're going, though. I I have to be honest. I know people are sort of like having some negative reactions about like it not going anywhere yet. Oh. I kind of love the pace that yeah. I'm not so frantic, like watching Discovery. Yeah. Like watching yep. Discovery, it's like every episode you're like, okay, someone going to die? Is someone going to get shot? Are we going to go to yeah. a pocket universe? Are we going to end, like, you know, what what world-ending paradox is going to happen? What about mm. the shrooms? <laughs> right. <laughs> Where, whereas, whereas in this, I'm kind of like, okay, Shabon is taking us on this journey yeah. That's going to last it a feels, bit. It feels measured. Right. I had... This is a question I had watching this episode, which, again, not being as, like, you talked about deep dives into Star Trek, not being super deep into it yet, I wasn't sure about. I was under the impression, just from Next Gen in several episodes like this, that money and, like, being ambitious for the sake of, like, material things wasn't a thing anymore. Okay. Can we just comment on this? Okay. This has been Matt Myra on Star Trek The Next Conversation. This has been, and Matt did the after show for Discovery. I mean, Matt is as big a Uh Star Trek nerd as there is on the planet. Matt's big complaint so far on the three episodes that they've done breaking down Picard has been, why is, like even going back to the reporter in the first episode, like, why yeah. does that kind of news journalism, like gotcha news journalism, even exist in why a does it exist? culture where there's no money? Yeah, that. that but there, was I mean, thing. but there is money. I mean, we have the Ferengi. That's we have Pi- Orion Pirates. We have, you know, uh, the Orion Syndicate. We have these kind of like things that like or groups that that do exist for monetary gain. Um, yeah. or for the pursuit of monetary gain. Uh, it's just not the, like, it, it's frowned upon. It's not seen as um, laudable. Well, just like, they were talking like, oh, we don't need to go after material stuff because we can replicate anything. Yeah. And then you, like, have the difference between, like, Picard and his vineyard, but then the girl lives in the trailer. And I was like... I mean, maybe it was her choice, though. I mean, I think she's, you know, pretty psychologically hurt. And so maybe she just wanted to live in a smaller house in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. But it's a, it's, a, it's this, like, bigger... I think it's a philosophical question, right? Like, you're, like the reason Star Trek was set in a utopia 
mm-hmm. was uh, in the 60s was because the you know the, the the world was dealing with the Cold War and the aftermath of um, World War II uh, and and other wars then, and they wanted to and Rod, Gene Roddenberry wanted us to be able to see a future that was more uh, welcoming and more um, open and uh, and uh, more altruistic. And the mm-hmm. basic solution the, to the, that is make food, water, and lodging available to everybody. Right, but but the mm-hmm. I mean the purpose of the show right now is to ask those questions, but to mirror ourselves rather than to show something that is that that is ideal because we've already seen ideal and it didn't work. Right, it didn't change us. Yeah. I was just trying to figure out, like, is this something that changed in some of the episodes? Just because I tend to take the more... I, I like the fantasy sides of shows like this. Um, I like the the lore and the, oh, well, in this universe, this is how this works. So I just wasn't sure if I was missing, like, something in future episodes, different shows. If if maybe with the passage of time that had, like, they had moved away from that. But it also makes sense that just, like, this show is meant to reflect a different time period of literal viewers not so much the yeah. actual universe you know absolutely yeah. and so they took a different approach absolutely that makes sense that makes sense um okay one last just since we're at the end of act one and now we're going to go into stuff that was really not in the prequel trailers in the trailers that sure. led up to the show dropping and whatever we'll guesses real quick about where we're going for the end of this season oof with probably seven episodes left to go or something like that. I don't know. Like the, um, the, the scientist, what's her name? Yeah, I wish I could remember. I'm sorry. The I can't blonde remember. girl. Yeah. I can't remember oh. her name, but she said her, her actor, um, the actor who plays her said in the, uh, the post show, the after show. Yeah. With, Will um, yeah, she or something like that. She was talking about in some interview. She was talking Allison about Allison Pill, Doctor Agnes Girardi. Yeah. Allison Pill. She was talking about uh, how this is like Picard's last journey and how he's like dying and stuff. And I was like, "Dang it!" She just talked about him dying. Yeah, and I really think that this is at the very least, at the very least, someone's going to come and like cure him. But, like, I think it's going to be, they're going to play it up. Yeah. And maybe that's what they're already showing us, that, you know, mm-hmm. he is so much weaker and he's trying to draw out the... I would, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to discover that he, like, has some sort of terminal illness that, like, by resting and withdrawing, he was able to stave off and now like, re-entering into, like, like that, yeah. this lifestyle has kind of sped up the process and that he will probably maybe just die from it you know maybe we just at the end of the season nothing crazy although with Picard I'd almost hope he gets an honorable kind of go out in a big sure. fashion you know that seems uh, true to his I character see every single every single episode is just foreshadowing it now mm-hmm. yeah I will say one thing I've been neglecting to mention that I wanted to, it's very vocal fry and I wanted to mention is that Issa Brionis who is Dodge Soji uh, she actually one of her big breaks was that she was Peggy in the um, tour of of Hamilton, and I've been forget- ne- I've been neglecting to mention it. I I kept forgetting. Um, so 
not only can she play a murderous synthetic robot um, who's not really murderous, <laughs> but who's very spiritual apparently, um, and human, and maybe Data's child, and maybe not, maybe. and maybe Bruce Maddox's child. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> she's, she was also and Peggy. Um, but uh, I just, just uh, I, I guess I, I, I. So let me just say I, I wish, and I don't think this is where we're going. I wish we were headed toward a, a, a series one finale of Picard hearing from Q. But my guess, yeah. my guess is they're going to avoid his character, John Delancey's character altogether. Yeah. I just love John Delancey as an actor and would love to see him come back. But it feels like a thing that if you did it, we need to be multiple seasons in. Because it feels like they're trying to really ground the story in the universe. Totally. Yeah. And not make it quite as mystical as Q. Um, yeah. But yeah. anyway, it's just a... I mean, I'd also be content with... I, I don't know. and That's just a... It's just in the back of my mind. I'm like, nobody's talking about John Delancey. No one's even mentioning John Delancey. People talk about Dorn. People talk about LaForge. I mean, I just... Anyway, that that's my thing. All right. Josh, what's your voice deep dive for us this week, man? So I think this is a little less geared towards uh, digital signal processing and a little bit more things that Josh was listening to and thinking about during lessons this week. Um, so I found this old proposal for uh, an undergrad honors thesis from back in the day. And um, I found this and it reminded me of a paper that I had read uh, in Journal of Voice a couple months ago. Um, by Pasquale Botolico and a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. um, it is called Singing Voice Quality, colon, The Effects of Maxi Maxillary Dent Dental Arch and Singing Style. Um, and I, was, I, have, I have 13 tenors out of 19 students in my studio right now. And I have three private students who are tenors. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed this semester or this year has been... Um, appreciating the differences between all of these different uh, different voices. And I was thinking, what, what makes these voices different? They're all singing similar, relatively similar ranges. They're all singing, um, you know, some different repertoire, but they have a lot of overlap. What makes these voices different? And I remembered this article from the 90s that oh, wow. I... Uh, yeah, from 1990, I'm sorry, from 2000. So 1999, oh, 2000. Okay. All right. Um, called Maxillary Dental Arch from related to, uh, or form related to voice classification, a pilot study by Marinick and Minaldi. And I remember citing this a bunch when I was younger. Um, and they basically said, you know, uh, the depth of your um, essentially hard palate, maxillary dental arch, the depth of your hard palate um, relates in certain ways to voice type. And mm. what Pasquale and a number of people did um, uh, recent, more recently now is they've taken different singers, all female singers, um, done these um, dental casts and uh, compared those dimensions. So front of the palate, depth of the palate, or width of the palate, and, um, or depth of the palate in the front and the back, and then mm -hmm. the width. Um, and compared that with the singing power ratio and the ratio between the level of the first and second harmonics. 
essentially saying like, here are measures of voice quality. Here's how they relate to the size and shape of the hard palate. Right. Essentially. Yes. Um, And they were finding uh, this new paper now is talking, is saying not only does it uh, kind of relate to the voice type or the, um, the size of the voice potentially, but Mm -hmm. also that these different sizes uh, or these different shapes of the hard palate essentially could relate potentially to different styles of singing, uh, namely operatic singing and contemporary belt. That if you have one of these shapes that you could actually be more inclined to sing a certain style. That's I think that it's interesting. I don't know, like that they themselves have said that they need to, that it's a small sample size. They would need to look at this further. But I think it's yeah. uh, interesting when we start thinking about like the sounds that we're trying to get from singers, um, not be kind of within a, in a box of our own experiences. And we kind of have to like uh, uh, be listening for um, it, it listening for an individual's uh, authentic sound rather than trying to fit them within a box because these different things could uh, result that we can't change could result in very different sounds. Oh man, that, I mean, that's a, that's a point I've been preaching for. I mean, at least as long as I've been teaching musical theater singers and classical singers at the same time, because I, I just, it's it's the perfect and I mean, you know, Sarah's seen this in just students she knows back from my current university. I mean, we'll have sometimes mm-hmm. people walk in and they're just trying to sing classical music and it's just they're being given good instruction and it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. they and they walk out and sing a a Cole Porter song and they Phenomenal. could blow the top off the joint. Absolutely. Um, now that doesn't also the, the the interesting thing there to me is that there are obviously though colleagues among us, our our friend here across the table, Sarah herself, who sing very well classically and in a contemporary Absolutely. style. Yeah. I mean, um, so uh, that's always sort of fascinating to me. Absolutely. But, but at the same time, also like I think of, and I'll just use since she's my wife, and I have, I guess privilege to say how beautiful she is mandy's Mm. face is very much what you would think of when you think of a lyric soprano absolutely it's Mm -hmm. just she just you know and that's interesting to me that we obviously not that palatal shape is directly coordinated to face shape but at the same time there's a certain width there's a certain thing that just comes out in your face structure individual characteristics right and opera singing teachers i've heard them talk about that kind of idea Forever. And I've actually mentioned this. In fact, one of my current students, I'm going to compare this to Friday. Sorry, I'm taking over. Forgive me, vocal (laughs) fan. Soapbox. I'm getting excited. It's been a long week. Um, Friday, I was teaching a lesson to this semi-pro musical theater singer. She's trying to, she's post-graduation trying to get into Mm -hmm. the business. Totally. And she had a big audition, well, tomorrow, Sunday. And okay. we're doing the we're doing the one nine to five cut where it starts out with the normal theme, the bum 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 and then she gets into that all those D sharps. And when she came to me, yeah. she couldn't really belt above a B. So okay. Uh, but like I looked harder. at this girl I th- and I did this I, I I don't like to make like judgments on people just by what they look like. But I looked at her and she was telling me all her rep and it was this like this young ingenue rep. And I was like, 
right, but have you sung Alphaba? Yeah. <laughs> and and she's like, well, I mean, it's like my dream, and it's really how I feel about characters, but I've always just been assigned this voice, and I was like, okay, yeah, so it's but... what your personality says. It's also what you look like, f- and I was just looking at her face structure, and I was like, and so, and she goes, wait, so you're telling me I actually might sing that kind of music? I was like, yes, you're going to sing that kind of music because that's what, and it gets the perfect example of she was put in a box because it was like, it was like healthy and it was like the right thing to sing, right? You know, to sing legit Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, and Mm -hmm. she actually sings, like she sings Carrie really well. Like she sings, you know, really great. But it's just I'm so glad you brought that up because it really much aligns with what I was thinking about on Friday and and all weekend and that was that's just what a what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful little segment today. This was this was this was great, you two. Fantastic. <laughs> Josh, thanks for bringing that back to our attention. I had forgotten about that of article. Course. Now that now that you're telling me about it, I remember it. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's and the fun thing is actually that the Marinick and Minaldi are actually co-authors on Pasquale's article now. Oh, fantastic. And, and, and that's like, I mean, so that's like 20 years. Could you imagine yeah. doing something at the early part of your career, 20 years later, someone else just picking it up? Yeah, and you just and little back. old me, I like remember citing it when I was in undergrad. That's which that's, was not quite 20 years ago. That's literally <laughs> how I, I was like, that seemed a little off, but I was like, oh, you know, I, I hate I to say it. About his age. I hate oh, to say um, it being on this side of the career. That's a little bit how I felt when Ecternox cited me in Journal of Voice in October. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, uh, you come to a certain career stage and you start going, <laughs> huh? Um, and then you realize it's just cause you're old. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. gosh, you can't say you're old yet. Uh, 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 what are you going to say 20 years from now? A lot of gray now? in this beard I've got going. A lot of gray. Uh, a lot of gray anyway guys thank you dirt okay indeed all right guys thank you so much this was awesome we'll see you later vocal fam okay bye josh see ya see ya bye